Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the campfire. The only place where friends and strangers alike sit down and tell tales in truth or fiction. In exchange of my blessing of their safe travels. Allow me to relight the fire while you relax and listen. Make your mind wander about the reality we live in. The story I'm about to tell you is from a traveler named Snickering Haystack. He called this one, I've been stuck in the year 2005 for over a decade. Please, allow me to tell you his tale. Sari, December 24th. I know now that I never should have let them in. I knew at the time that I didn't have to. My ego just gets away from me sometimes, I suppose. After all, what do I have to hide? Jennifer and Tobias are tobogganing at the hill near our house. My husband Joshua is God knows where, when I hear the front doorbell ring. I'm busy vacuuming, getting the house ready for Christmas dinner when I hear it. At first, I assume it's a salesman, or maybe a Jehovah's Witness. Regardless, I put the vacuum aside and go to answer it. On my front step, standing on the welcome mat is a tall, handsome man. He looks at me with naive, almost childlike eyes. His womanish blonde hair cascades down both shoulders from under his toque, giving him an angelic yet immature air. He's wearing a heavy winter jacket and boots, but I can see he's wearing some sort of uniform underneath. I then hear a voice that isn't his. Hello, Mrs. Claiborne. I look at the man with the blonde locks closely. He hasn't even moved. Searchingly, I crane my neck and do a near panoramic sweep of the cul-de-sac, trying to find the source. Our home rests at the back of a horseshoe-shaped line of other houses with square lawns, driveways, and picket fences. Mrs. Claiborne, the voice calls a second time. I step out onto the welcome mat so that I have a view all the way down to the footpath which ends where my front steps begin. There, I see a stocky, red-haired woman sitting in a wheelchair, wearing clothing similar to the blonde man beside me. She has what looks to be a thick black binder on her lap. Parked in my drive is an industrial van, painted burgundy. Good morning, Mrs. Claiborne, she says, smiling with practiced sincerity. My name is Christine, and the man on your front step there is Nicholas. If possible, we would like to come inside. What's this about? I ask, not too rudely. If you don't mind, Mrs. Claiborne, it's very cold out here. And snowing. I was hoping you and Nicholas could help carry me into the house. I don't have the use of my legs, you see. This takes me slightly aback. The woman had not said these things in a chastising or self-pitying way. Though a bit coy, she strikes me as very professional and empathetic and I feel a wash of shame for not immediately offering to help this wheelchair-bound creature. That's fine, I say, trying to match her sincerity and affableness. But what is this about? Your daughter, says the woman, her voice carrying over the moan of the wind. Jennifer, Children's Aid Society. Of course, probably here because of the principal, 
concerned over what she found in Jen's locker. Sighing, my shoulders slumped. I nod my head, resigned to this predictable indignity and molestation of my home. Again, I know I could have declined, and I could have made them give me whatever notice they had for me to sign out there in the cold, or I could have just refused them outright and told them to get stuffed. But at that moment, the wheelchair-bound woman moves me with her sincerity, and a rather pitiful condition. Also, I figure it would be better to let them in and get it over with. After all, what do I have to hide? I haven't salted my steps in the last few days. I call down to her, feeling no cause to address the six-foot-two mute standing to my right. I'll open the garage door. It's dry in there, and your friend and I can lift you in through the laundry room. Would that be all right? I can then see her beaming smile through her scarf and ensnaring. Red hair. That sounds fine, Mrs. Claiborne. It takes a moment navigating her through the garage, around the SUV and the kids' scattered toys. Though she is surprisingly light to carry up the steps and into our cramped little laundry room. Without any more help needed from me, the tall mute wheels Christine into the front hall, and from there the dining room, attached to the kitchen. Besides cleaning, I've been preparing the mashed potato casserole for tomorrow. I still have to drive to Londo's later to pick up our turkey. Special ordered. Not seeing a reason not to, I brew them each a cup of tea and one for me as well. Thank you so very much, says Christine, holding the steaming mug in both hands. Her fingers red from the cold. Her attendant, Nicholas, doesn't touch his cup, letting it cool on the kitchen table as if sending a freeze ray with his eyes. I sit down, ready to listen. The woman places her thick binder on the table, then unzips it. She tosses aside a few pages before coming to her report. Gritting my teeth, I wait to hear about Jennifer's behavior and the suspicions of maltreatment or neglect. So, we're here regarding an incident involving your daughter. Mrs. Claiborne, she begins, innocent enough. Yes, we were informed that the following items were found in your daughter's locker at school. One roll of duct tape, two pairs of combat-style gloves, 15 feet of hemp rope about an inch in diameter, two books related to self-defense, and seven knives and blades, three of which look to be self-made. There was only one book on self-defense. I correct her. The other was on wilderness survival. Oh, thank you. I'll make that correction for the file. I note immediately that neither she nor her mute, Nicholas, are writing any of this down. Their eyes just bore into me while their hands rest motionless. And how has Tobias been adjusting? She then asks. I screw up my eyes at her. Well, adjusting to the current condition of the home about some of the changes that have occurred with you and your husband. Digesting this, I stare back at her, then scan hers and Nicholas's face. Okay, who the hell are you? Their benign expressions twist into forced scowls. They look at each other with a rehearsed air of puzzlement. I'm sorry, Mrs. Claiborne. Christine asks, keeping up the candid enthusiasm. I thought you were CPS, but that's obviously not the case. What do you mean? Says Christine shaking her head with too much force. Of course, we're from Children's Aid Society. If you were CPS investigators or social workers, you would have immediately asked to speak with Jennifer, or at least asked where she was. A mock confusion on her face wilts, leaving only blank recognition. She's not contrite but ready to get serious. There's also no way you would have any idea about me and my husband. I carry on. 
There's never been an incident related to us reported before. And trust me, I would know if someone was going to make an allegation about us and our relationship. So, who the fuck are you two? When Christine speaks again, her face is etched in stone, her voice backed with steel. Do you really think the arrangement you've made with Morgenstern is fair? Lorraine. It's now my turn to play dumb. What? I ask, scrunching up my nose for effect, wobbling my head from side to side. Your children, or your husband, Joshua, for that matter. And are you even happy here, in this contrived limbo? Or purgatory, you've willfully confined yourself to? I don't know what you're talking about, I lie. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Slumping back in my wicker chair, I send darts their way with my eyes. If you understood my reasoning, you wouldn't be asking if it was fair. And what is your reasoning? I scoff. You wouldn't get it. Try me. I don't respond. What's the point? She's just trying to bait me. I look down at my chai tea and can no longer see steam coming off it. Feeling how cold the ceramic has gone, I pick up my mug and stand from the table. My vocation the sink. I toss the iced fluid and give them my back, waiting for them to vacate my home. We're not here to change anything, Lorraine. I hear Christine's voice. What's going to happen has already been put in motion. We're just hoping to avoid any needless violence. I spin on her, my face hot and contorted. What the hell does that mean? I thunder. She says nothing. Again, I look down the cast iron basin by my waist, waiting for them to be gone. We cannot save you, Lorraine, she says. No one can. But maybe we can save Tobias and Jennifer. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what any good parent would want? For their children, a tremor courses my spine. I grip the counter ledge, my knuckles white. Get out of my house. I don't hear them get up. I don't hear the squeal of rubber over the linoleum or the creaking of footsteps. When I look back at the dinner table, both of them are gone, vanished like into thin air. The only indication of their ever being here is the cups of tea, which are now like ice, almost freezing to the touch. Near livid, I grab the vacuum and begin cleaning ferociously around the house. I then toss the machine to the ground, too flustered, and begin a sweep of all the rooms, looking for any weapons Jennifer might have stashed this rotation, anything I might have missed. I start with hers, then Tobias's bedroom, turn both upside down, but find nothing. Still not satisfied, I storm down to the basement and check the spot where Jennifer hid her weapons the last two rotations. In the crawl space below the floor, I've already checked it five times this month, and this sixth time yields no new results. I then remind myself that I've already found her annual arms cache. At the school in her locker, I forego the rest of my search. Still far from calm, I go to the kitchen and pour myself a whopping glass of Chardonnay, downing it within a minute then refilling. After consuming half of my second glass, I check the casserole in the oven. It's fine, of course, and I end up singeing the webbing of my hand from opening the door without an oven mitt. Sucking on the red throbbing flesh between my thumb and forefinger, I grab the kitchen phone and dial the number of the creature. Morgenstern, Legend and Associates, his voice blasts from the receiver. If we can't. Morgenstern, I cut him off, my voice sounding like I've been chewing glass. Mentally, I recite my prepared ultimatum. After tomorrow you better have fixed this goddamn trance and gotten my family back to normal. 
I swear to God, you will not like what happens if I'm dissatisfied in the next rotation. I tried to work up the nerve to say this out loud, to curse him over the phone. But instead, my voice catches in my throat, and I just croak and sputter like an idiot. Hello, Mrs. Claiborne, says the creature after a minute. I place the receiver back on its hook, ending the call. There's no point making idle threats, because that's what they are, idle threats. What can I possibly do to Mr. Morgenstern if this illusionary world keeps breaking down? What can I do at all? Sunday, December 25th, dinner. Christmas Day begins, as usual, this rotation. The kids, or at least Tobias, wake me up around five, desperate to open some of the presents gathered under the tree. As is custom, he can open the ones gifted to him by me and his dad, but must wait until our guests arrive to open the rest. Like on the previous rotation, I'm a bit choked up that Jennifer has elected to sleep in this morning, not bothering to see what Santa Claus has left her. Irksome still is that Joshua, my husband and father to my children, has not shown up yet. Still, no bother. He always shows up around dinner time. I make Tobias the typical Christmas breakfast. A serving of eggs benedict on a toasted English muffin with yellow hollandaise sauce drizzled on top. Just a whiff of that eggy, savory aroma causes my head to fog with delightful holiday nostalgia. I make a plate for myself beside a cup of black coffee and a third serving for Jennifer, which ends up going cold before being slung into the waste basket. For the actual dinner party, I have everything I need. I've made all the deserts four days prior. Baked the potato casserole yesterday, chopped up all the veggies, and made the stuffing. I grit my teeth and sulk a bit, figuring Josh won't show up in time to carve the goddamn bird. Waiting for the entree to cook, I while away the hours in the kitchen, reading a John Grisham novel. By five in the evening, everyone has arrived, my mother, my father, Joshua's parents, Edna Claiborne, Nee Walsh, and the glitchy hologram that now makes up my husband's brother, Freddy, and a half dozen more of my cousins, nieces, and nephews. Everyone who is supposed to be here has arrived. Everyone except my husband. This is odd. He is usually late, yes, but he always makes it in time for dinner. Every rotation. This isn't good. Everyone asks where he is, even Freddy. I plaster on a gluey, rictus smile and assure them that he must have just been caught up at work. The back of my neck nettled like a growling Doberman, knowing he is likely with the slut. Painfully, I keep my chin up the rest of the meal and carry on during dessert and coffee like I always do. I regale my dinner guests about my darling children, bragging while simultaneously making small complaints about them. Even while Jennifer and Tobias are sending optical arrows my way. I know, patronizing, but this is what all young children must endure until they marry and have families of their own. Truth is, it's all an act this year. All I can think about is what I'm going to do if Joshua doesn't show before midnight and how I will find him if I need to. The temptation to call Morgenstern is there, but I know he won't help. This is my end of the bargain, my responsibility. By 8.30, most of our guests have piled out into their cars ready to brave the snowy December night on their journeys home. Joshua's parents are the first to leave, disappointed their son couldn't be there, followed by Edna and the thing that has replaced Freddy. Before leaving, Freddy takes a moment to speak to me about his brother. It's a battle on my part not to recoil from him, 
the flashing glimpses of his true form revealing a figure both malignant and misshapen. Recalling old photographs of the elephant man, I don't retain a word of what he says. Behind my agonizing smile, I'm estimating where to find Joshua and how quickly to do it. If he's at work, it would only take an hour. Maybe more given the bad weather. If he's with the slut, that could take longer. I would have to take care of Tobias and Jennifer first in that case. Yes, best to get those two out of the way, then. By 10 o'clock, the guests are all gone. I've changed out of my dinner dress and into some comfy house clothes. Despite my fears she would resist, Jennifer agrees to sit down with Tobias on the living room couch and complete one of our annual rituals, watching old movies on the TV. It's a little too early for the televised rendition of A Christmas Carol, starring Alistair Sim, so I put on a burnt DVD from my favorite VHS, the classic comedy short, Dinner for One. More of a New Year's Eve tradition, I know, but my family is Norwegian, and I just can't resist the sweet little comedy. As Heinz Piper introduces the sketch in his regal German, the sentimental old-timey music filling our home, I retreat into the kitchen and grab two of my children's favorite mugs. Frosty the Snowman for Jennifer, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer for Tobias. I pluck the rubber gloves from the lip of the sink and fit them on over my hands before putting on a blue paper mask. I'm now ready to reach into the cupboard under the sink and retrieve the vial of cyanide. I have done it now at least ten times. It's easy. Just a drop in the bottom of both cups. The cocoa powder, then hot water, then stir. I know better than to carry the mugs to my kids. Too much risk of exposure. I don't want to kill myself before it's my time. But this year, I wait to do any of that, to even unscrew the cap from the vial of poison. My husband has still not arrived. It won't do anything if he isn't here too. And worse, what if he arrives and finds the children dead? Will he presume they are asleep? Not if he catches them in their last agonizing spasms for life. No, I need to deal with these two then I can worry about Josh. And if I need to brave the night's howling gale to find him, so be it. As though answering my prayers, a white light crosses the kitchen via the window, indicating a vehicle entering our cul-de-sac. I look out the window and see Josh's 1995 Lincoln Town car. It lurches up the drive, the front driver's side wheel rolling over the lawn and sinking into the snow. He's drunk. Hastily, I unscrew the cap of the vial Drip the poison into both mugs. Pour the chocolate mix and stir the hot water. Tobias, Jennifer, come get your hot cocoa. It's on the kitchen counter. I call to them, making sure to put some distance between myself and the spiked beverages before removing my mask. I have already given Josh's decanter a boost hours ago. A triple whiskey neat being his yuletide tradition while vegging out with the kids. I'm still wearing rubber gloves when I hear my husband stumbling against the front door. Jogging toward it, I witness the door rip open, my husband standing slantwise. Still clutching the brass knob, an eddy of snow preceding him. With his disheveled trench coat and hair damply dotted white, he looks like a euphoric Jimmy Stewart at the end of It's a Wonderful Life. As I suspected, he is drunk. Still, this is all very new. Merry Christmas, Lo, he says, his voice an octave too loud. Despite the weather, I can see that he is flushed, sweaty. Each eye looks like a pea swimming in a tiny saucer of buttermilk. Without closing the door, he leans in and embraces me. I'm too stunned to reciprocate. 
This hasn't happened before, neither before nor during the rotations. Feeling the brush of his ten o'clock stubble against my cheek, I smell the sour smoke of scotch through his pores. Then he whispers into my ear. I ended it. I almost don't hear him. The bludgeoning repetition of the same disappointment. Year after year, hardening me to any sliver of hope. He then pulls back although he is still crushing me, and his nose is a mere inch from mine. Did you hear me? He asks, his whiskey-laced breath crinkling my nose. I ended it. I'm done with that woman. All I want is you, Lo. All I want is you. Breathless, I feel my heart punch its way through my ribcage. My throat constricts and my eyes turn damp. No longer bothered by Josh's single malt halitosis. I lean in and kiss him hard on the mouth. He reciprocates and for a fleeting moment. We just stand there in the gusty doorway, swapping spit like teenagers. Remembering myself, I pull back. Knowing that the ritual is not complete. I think we both need a drink. I whisper into his collarbone, trying to segue to what must be done. I then feel him pull away from me. Are you kidding? He remarks, knitting his brow. A sloppy smirk curled his cheek. I'm well into the bag. Lo, the last thing I need is a pick-me-up. No, what I need is my wife on top of me. The front door slams shut, and I can feel his strong arms begin to pull me into the house. My mind races to plan B, and I grab my handbag from the coat rack. Josh doesn't notice me carrying a purse as he drunkenly dance walks me across the shoe mat and into the front hall. I notice but don't register that Tobias is the only one planted in front of the TV as we pass. Where is Jennifer? Figuring he won't make it up the stairs in his condition, I opt to lead him into his all but shuttered study. The children surely won't hear us in there. Inside, the room is pitch dark, musty, and dry. It smells of mothballs and old yellowing paper. Before I know what's happening, Josh has his trousers around his ankles and has me propped up, spread eagle on the edge of the desk. I let him yank down my black tights and underwear as we kiss and grope feverishly, grasping a chilled lapel of his wool cashmere coat. I wrench him in closer, still with the wherewithal to place my handbag beside me. Well within reach, I feel him stick his penis inside me and begin to grow. In his inebriated state, we aren't so much making love as we are attempting to parallel park. While he grunts and grinds, thrusting with all the precision of a blind archer, I zip open my bag and fish out the item. A cyanide-filled syringe. You must understand, I don't want to do it. I don't want this moment to end. But end it must, and I need to keep my end of the bargain with Mr. Morgenster. After the better part of a minute, my husband's groans peek into piercing wails. He has taken his slobbered chin off my shoulder and is now arching toward the ceiling. Realizing his nearing climax, I choose the only course of action that will be both undetected and mercifully quick. Reaching around him with my left hand, I jam an index finger into his anus, then pierce his buttock with the needle in my right. I feel his ass clench into an iron clamp in fear he's about to pull away, but he instead continues to pump, moaning in both surprise and delight. I keep both my finger and the syringe in place, burying the plunger with my thumb. After another couple of seconds, I feel him discharge inside me. Like a tranquilized zoo animal, he goes limp and drips off of me, falling with a thud to the floor. He lies there, limbs akimbo, and begins to spasm and convulse. And not from sexual ecstasy, 
Choked, I look away, trying desperately not to envision the look of horror on his face. Or the white foam bubbling over his lips like a cauldron. It doesn't take long before the tremors that seize his body ceases. And he's lying cold and stiff across the carpet. One down, two to go. Three if you're counting me. Panting, sweaty, and more than a little blue. I take a moment to compose myself, pulling my pants back on and scanning the otherwise forgotten room. I look down at the other side of my husband's desk, where he would have sat, and that's when I see it. A thick strand of brown hemp rope protruded from underneath. I follow it under the desk and find what I feared, my daughter's survival kit, clustered into a neat pile, consisting of the coiled mile of rope, rolls of duct tape, fighting gloves, and various knives and blades. Shit, I hiss. I then wonder if her stash of weapons at the school was just a ruse. A trick so that I wouldn't check the house as thoroughly as I had on previous rotations. How could I have been so stupid? I then hear the slightest creak, like the house settling, and swivel my head toward the door. I had locked it when we came in, but at the little horizontal opening at the bottom, I can see the shadow of two feet standing just outside. Jennifer. For the moment, it occurs to me that I have the only available key to the office. Assuming Josh has either lost his key or has it on his person, it then seemed perfectly natural to just wait it out, try to negotiate with Jennifer through the locked door. Since there is no way for her to get in and I have all her weapons at my disposal. Of course, that won't do, midnight is approaching, and I can't be sure that either she or her brother has taken their medicine. With her surely standing outside the door, there is no reason for me to believe they have drunk their toxic beverages. Swallowing my instinct for motherly love and my desire to hunker down, I take up one of the blades, a serrated steel hunter's knife, from under the desk and creep toward the door. In one swift movement, I unlock the door and wrench it open. As I suspected, my daughter tries to sprint past me, charging for her stash. She doesn't get far. Having anticipated this move, I kick my foot in front of her path and send her diving to the floor. Landing on her belly and the heels of her hands, she lets out a gasp before rolling over onto her back. Her belly is exposed to me like the neck of a wildebeest to a lion. I sink down next to her, one hand out to soothe her while the other holds ready the knife. Shush, it's all right, sweetheart, I croon, drawing nearer. Her tears and gasps for air are like pins in my heart. Regardless, I must be strong. It's just like when you were little and you fell down and scraped your knee. Mommy's going to kiss the boo-boo and make it all better. As though she had been playing possum, Jennifer grabs a hold of my wrist then presses a forearm into my elbow before rolling over onto her belly, putting all her weight down on my arm. I squeal, both in shock and pain as I feel her drive me down into the carpet, like a wrestler on TV. She doesn't keep me down for long though. How could she? Her being five foot nothing and weighing 90 pounds soaking wet. A scuffle, a real Donnabrook breaks out, the two of us biting, scratching, tearing at each other's hair. I mostly dominate, able to almost stand back up while Jennifer latches onto me like a giant flailing barnacle. Her nails dig and pry at my wrist, trying to get to the knife. I never relinquish it. After I can't say how long, I finally get squarely to my feet and with all my might, Managed to hurl Jennifer off my shoulders, sending her crashing again to the floor, this time on her back. I hear her breath flee her body, knowing this time she really does have the wind knocked out of her. 
Not taking any chances, I stomp my foot, heel first, into her stomach and keep it there. She squirms and struggles with what strength she has left, but it isn't enough. I know I have her. Two down, almost. Two more to go. Using my heel to keep her pinned, I find my balance and take aim at Jennifer's heart, raising the knife Michael Mayers' style. I hold it up high to get a good stabbing motion, but then I see something out of the tail of my eye. A blur of a human rushing towards me. It's Tobias. He's carrying something I can't make out. I turn too late. Tobias, no. Something long strikes me in the back of the head. The pain wrapping around to my temple. Everything goes black. Now, that was the end of my tale. I hope you enjoyed yourself, listening while escaping the world you live in. That is all for today. Safe travels and a blessed day. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.